Friday the 19th of February 2021 and welcome to episode 5 of the Red Zone Restricted podcast from Big Heads Media. In this episode, we focus on the rise of Curtis Jones and Mohamed Salah's place in the Liverpool history books. Tomorrow is Derby Day of course and we'll discuss our pre-match nerves and predictions. So it's our second episode of the week. That's a new one. Before we actually get started today, I wanted to touch on some some listener feedback and get the thoughts of my co-host Dan on this. So I spoke to one of our listeners earlier this week and he said when we're having discussions and somebody finishes speaking, we have a tendency to just call it a good point repeatedly within an episode, which probably speaks to our own experience as podcasters. And he also said that he thinks unrestricted in the title means that it should be no holds barred disagreements and debate between us. Whereas I think unrestricted means the level of insight and analysis, which obviously we excel at, you know, our analysis is outstanding. I think everyone would agree on that. Um, Dan, I wonder what your thoughts are on that feedback. Um, do, you, do you think that said listener has a point? Without wanting to agree with you, because that is half the point, um, possibly. I mean, the unrestricted point, yeah, I, I can see where he's coming from, but, you know, do we want to just argue with everyone for an hour? Is that what we're here to do? Um, and we've had brilliant guests on, so we can't really help if they make outstanding points that can't be disagreed with. Um, I think we have had a little bit of to and fro in terms of debate and disagreement, but you know we, we'll try and ramp it up if that's what they want to hear, I suppose. Yeah, so really, if you or Scott, our guest today, says anything I disagree with, I am going to have to you know, come down on you like a ton of bricks, because apparently that, that's what the people want, so we'll run with that. Um, so as I say, our guest today is Scott Groom, who's a writer for Anfield Index and LFC Transfer Room. Um, Scott, how are you and have the pre-Derby nerves kicked in yet? Uh, hi guys, yeah, I'm, I'm good, uh, thank you, thank you for, for having me on. Never really know what to expect with a Derby, I mean, I know it's Anfield and everything, so if you listen to history, then you'd, you'd suggest that, you know, we're not going to we're not gonna lose, might drop points, but it would either be a draw or a Liverpool win, but this season's nuts, and it? it's absolutely nuts, and to be perfectly honest, who knows what's who knows what's going to happen? To, and um, I think the, the, the performance against Leipzig the other day did us the world a good. Looked a bit more back to our normal selves, to be honest. But um, I don't know. Like it's it's a horrible game to go into when you're not feeling sort of unbeatable and on top of the world, isn't it? Let's let's be perfectly honest. Well, it is a horrible game, and I think it's it's Friday morning at the moment. So we probably reached the point in the week where the positivity coming from Leipzig starts to give way to the the nerves and the sort of contemplating the unthinkable when it comes to the derby um and we will discuss um the derby in depth later obviously it's been a few days since Leipzig now but we'll just briefly reflect on that game um in the usual fashion with our three word match reviews and we'll start with Dan so Dan what's your three word review of Leipzig and a bit of an explanation. Yeah, so my favourite review um, is just more like it um, because it was a lot more like 
what we've come to expect um, from this Liverpool side. I mean, I feel like I'm repeating myself. I probably said this two weeks ago after West Ham and Spurs, but it, it wasn't perfect. It was far from it, if we're going to be brutally honest. Um, we gave up a lot of chances. We arguably could have conceded early in both halves. But in terms of um, what looked like commitment hard, because I don't really doubt the commitment previously, but in terms of the speed of play, everything's looked a little bit sharper. You know, the, the front three were sharper. Obviously, Mane and Sally got goals, which was good news moving forwards. But yeah, just a lot more like what you've come to expect from Liverpool. So so more like it for me and hopefully long may it continue. See, it's interesting that you, you say the performance was rough around the edges because, you know, I agree that we gave up scoring opportunities in that game. But the way I looked at it was with the defence that we had and you saw Henderson's lack of sort of centre-half instincts really on a couple of occasions with the defence we had that was probably the best defensive performance you were going to get against a, a team of that level you know I, I think I had a slightly higher opinion of the performance than you did I'm not saying that you thought it was uh, a poor performance or, or anything but but yeah it is only the the second episode we've recorded after the victory so yeah we can be a bit more positive in these so Scott, what what did you go for for your um for your review? Well, Dan kind of stole my three words, but I had another couple talked away at my sleeve. So I would I'd go for far more intense. And you've both kind of alluded to it there. Um it was a far better performance than we've seen recently. And I think the biggest thing for me that stood out was the fact that it was that the the pressing was better, it was sharper, we were snapping into tackles more, we were pressing a bit higher up the pitch. It, would, it just looked a little bit more like we had a bit more zip in our game and a bit more of that, like you say, it sounds like a silly phrase to use, but a bit more of that old Liverpool or the Liverpool that we're used to seeing on the clock where the pressure is relentless. And, it, and you know, obviously there are periods in games where your opposition is going to have a spell and that and that, that happens in any, any game of football, really. But even during those spells, like the intensity was still there and it was there from minute one and it was there until full time. And that was something that really impressed me because I think, especially when you look back at the Leicester game, you know, it was it was a fairly good performance until we conceded that first goal. And then everything kind of just went to pieces. The intensity went, the concentration went, the decision-making went, everything. So I think for me to see that kind of commitment to the cause and just carrying the job through from minute one to minute 91 or whatever it may be um, was a real sort of lift for me, but uh, uh, touching on that fact that you just made about the performance, I, I'm I'm more in agreement with you, Dave, than than Dan. I think it was a pretty good performance, and like you said about the defensive issues, when you're playing a 30 year old central midfielder, a centre back. I mean, I, I did make a point on Twitter saying the Echo gave Henderson a nine out of ten for his performance, and I thought it was a bit of a reach, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I know he's doing a fantastic job there; he's playing out of position. But Fabinho's playing there and he's playing out of position and he looks far more accustomed in the role than Henderson does. And like you say, there's times where he gets caught. It was, it was, I think it was that Huang chance at the end. He just got completely done, basically, for want of a better term. And, but you know, that, that's the kind of thing. I think the, the days where we had Van Dijk and Gomez in the middle and we weren't giving up any big chances in games are kind of gone until we get those back or we kind of get, you know, whether it's, Nat Phillips or Ben Davies or Fabinho when he comes back playing alongside Kabak or whatever it may be. I think until that happens, 
I don't think we're not going to give up big chances in games because, like you say, we're, we're playing with a real makeshift defence at the minute. Well, you are right there. And I think in terms of the Henderson rating, it probably depends on what sort of metric you use to judge him. Do you judge him as a centre-back or as somebody doing a job at centre-back? But as I said, I think it's defensive instincts, really. And Fabinho being a sort of a number six, and I think he's previously played right-back in his career, probably has has probably got those more fine-tuned than Henderson has. I also think the the point you raised about pressing is a good one because certainly in the first 10 minutes of the match, the the intensity of the Leipzig press, you know, it kind of lived up to the villain. But in the end, Liverpool, I think Liverpool reminded us really of how effective a pressing team they are by um, playing with such intensity. And Leipzig obviously struggled to cope with that. For my three-word review, I've gone with made them pay. I'd say Liverpool actually created more in the first half without scoring a goal. But in the second, when Leipzig made errors, um, they were properly ruthless and it's earned them a fantastic result. And as we've we've alluded to, that there was one or two let-offs in the game, but um, I don't think we could have expected much more from a defensive standpoint. A big boost from both the fans' point of view and the team's point of view. We'll move on now to sort of a discussion arising from the Leipzig game, and it's about Curtis Jones, who had another very strong performance um, on a big occasion. So really, the first question I wanted to ask on Jones is, what do we think is behind his improvement this season? Because obviously young players get better, you know, they improve as as time goes on, or at least most of them do. But the sort of increase in his level has been so pronounced that it's not just a case of development. There's, I think we can kind of drill down a bit deeper than that. So, Dan, I'll come to you first on this. What what are you sort of attributing it to? Yeah, obviously, like you touched upon there, it's a hell of a lot of it has to be down to time because, as we know, we've seen him as a teenager and now, you know, he's, he's had time to develop and what have you. But I think a lot of it probably comes down to trust. Um, it's quite an easy assumption to make when you're looking at Jurgen Klopp um, with youngsters generally. But, you know, that Liverpool midfield has been renowned for its industry and its defensive contribution as well as its attacking contribution. And I think, you know, there's been reports this week I've seen that like there was a lot of loan offers for Jones last year and Klopp wanted to keep him. And I think that's paid dividends in terms of Klopp's had that extra time to to work on his defensive side of the game, which is not as great as, you know, the industrious midfielders that we've had, but it's definitely there and it's definitely improving. And I think that's a huge factor in him getting more game time and in getting more exposure. Like coming through the youth ranks, he's always scored goals and he's scored spectacular goals as well. And we've seen it obviously, you know, in the Derby and the Cup. Um, that's what he's capable of. And long-term, that's probably what he'll be in terms of an attacking midfielder. But in this Liverpool side, you can't really just be a luxury player, if you like, which is really harsh, but you, you can't do that. Um, you have to work hard off the ball as well. And I think him growing in confidence and him and Klopp having the trust in Jones to do that work has helped him flourish in the side. Um, and I, I think that's where the performances are coming from, from my, from my point of view. Um He's always been a confident lad. Like I think that's been well known throughout his his early career, really. So he was always going to make the step up in a way in terms of what he can offer going forwards. I just think 
the extra time he's been afforded to work with Liverpool and to work with you know high quality players. Like I think some of his development's been attributed to um, James Milner as well recently. That exposure to them type of players has helped him develop no end, in my opinion. A very good explanation there, and I think the point you alluded to about the loan moves um, is one we should touch on because yeah, if you look at the likes of just off the top of my head, Brewster going to Swansea last year performs very well, but still, despite scoring, you know, a really good quantity of goals doesn't do enough to convince Klopp that he has what it takes as an all-round player. Ends up at Sheffield United, and obviously we know how that's gone. And Harry Wilson's the other one as well. You know, I don't necessarily think he could have done much better in that Bournemouth team last season when we loaned him out. And I was, I'd say I was in favour of, you know, giving him a, a squad role for this season. But now he's on loan again in the Championship. He's not going to have a Liverpool career at the moment. So I think the fact that Jones did stay um, and that those loan offers were rebutted as they probably were in the case of Trent Alexander-Arnold um, reflects quite well on Jones. Um, but yeah, I want to pose the same question to you, to you, Scott. Obviously, Dan's, Dan's answer was pretty thorough, so he, he might have sort of touched on some ground that you, you wanted to cover, but what what do you think is behind the big improvement we've seen from Jones? Well, I, I did I did like Dan's point about um, sort of his, his confidence. I mean, you saw after... I mean, he's long been a name that, if, you know, if you follow Liverpool closely, you'll have known that he's a lad that's coming through the ranks. And like you say, he's been scoring goals for the youth teams at a really good level and has been, you know, in, in those youth teams, has been the star. Um, so he's obviously coming with a lot of confidence. And he said, didn't he, after, after he scored that goal in the, in the derby in the cup, he said, you know, I've, I want to be here and I want to be playing first team football. I think I'm I'm ready to start playing first team football. And for for everybody watching, see like a really young scouse lad saying that, it, it was it was good for sort of like, you know, the football romantic in you, like, you know, get another scouser in the team and another scouser that's hungry for success. So that was really nice to see. But then you obviously have to ask the question, can he can he back it up? Can he you can talk the talk, but can he walk the walk as well? And he's kind of He's not just proven that he's kind of got above and beyond any expectations. You've got to still remember how young this lad is. He's still, he's, I think, having that time and, like you say, the tutelage from, you know, uh, veterans like Milner and people like Henderson. And obviously, he's around now, like players like Thiago, who will help his game come on leaps and bounds. And you can't, you know, diminish the influence of players like Wayne Alden and Fabinho and all the other uh, midfielders that we have. A lot of it is down to obviously, he signed that new contract not too long ago he's now you know he's been training with the first team for a while now he's had that time with Klopp Klopp's obviously put the work in with him but a lot of you can do that with a lot of players and like I say we will have done that with the likes of Brewster and the likes of, of Harry Wilson and many youngsters that have gone before it takes a lot for that sort of tutelage and that guidance to actually be taken on and then be propelled into actual performances so I think you've just got to give him personally a lot of credit for the work he's doing he's obviously listening taking it in and transferring it into game into game day and we've seen if that's not quite happening with the likes of like Wilson and Brewster then they will be moved on whereas you know the likes of Trent and Jones are sort of here to stay and they're here to stay for a long time him staying and around those you know Premier League Champions League winning players to learn from them firsthand not just the sort of the technical skills, but the mentality and all that sort of stuff. I think that has really helped him when he could have been shifted on 
to go somewhere else, get more game time. It's actually done him the world of good to be around these pros. And I think it's a combination of pretty much everything, to be honest. Well, I think both of you have given really, really good sort of answers there. And Scott, you make a, a good point about really the drawbacks of going out on loan, even if your sort of chances in the first team are greater. You have to think about the environment you're developing in and you know it is an enviable environment for a youngster to be in Liverpool not only with the support network that, that they have but obviously the amount of as you say players he can learn from sometimes we see boys become men in a football and sense I think that's what we've seen with Jones and I have been struck by how much more mature and accomplished he looks this season I think we, we all agree that when we're watching him, he doesn't look like he's he's earning a run out anymore or he's in there of necessity. You know, he looks like he's earned his place. And the run of games that he's had in the first team um, will only have heightened his self-belief, which was never really a problem to begin with. And it will have allowed him to find a real rhythm because I think sometimes if, you, if you're throwing young players in every few weeks or months and then you don't get the big performance out of them, it's almost unfair to judge the young players from that because how are they supposed to have that that sharpness and that rhythm um, on such rare occasions? But as Scott said, I think he's been able to earn the trust of the manager and that's partly because he does the fundamentals in the game. You know, he works really hard, he tracks back and he doesn't just track back, you know, for the sake of it. He, he tracks back and wants to win the ball and a lot of the time recently, even if he hasn't been having the the most spectacular game in the final third, he's almost compensating for that with the work he's doing off the ball. And I think that is sort of a prerequisite of any Klopp midfielder. Just just briefly, um, what role do we reckon he'll have when there's this sort of promised land future where everyone's fit again at Liverpool next season? What role do we think Jones will have then when there's more competition? Similar to Oxlade-Chamberlain in a way, probably not as dynamic as an Oxlade-Chamberlain. Um who's also played a hell of a lot of positions throughout his career, not only just at Liverpool. But yeah, I think it has to be the most advanced of like an attacking an attacking midfield position. Um, obviously, the Wijnaldum one, you know, we, it looks like he could be leaving. He's not a replacement for Wijnaldum, in my opinion. Um, I think Thiago is probably more like the replacement for Wijnaldum um, in a natural progression of this midfield. So if I, if I throw this to you, Scott, I'll, what I'll do is I'll give you five names and if you could try and rank them in terms of what you think the pecking order will be next season. So, or what you think the pecking order should be next season. Ox, Milner, Shakiri, Keita and Jones. Dan's dodged a bullet with that one. That's hard. Uh, <laughs> what what he was saying about the the likes of, of Jones being genie what replacement, I, I, I agree. I don't, I don't think that they're just not the same sort of player. I know we you regularly see when one album goes to Holland and he, he plays more um, further forward and he gets on the score sheet more and all that sort of stuff and then you see him coming back to Liverpool and playing a more deeper lying role people are you know sort of asked the question as to why he's not there in Klopp's system but that's because he has other players that are, are, are better at Genie than that and Genie's a, a brilliant he's, he's brilliant at what he does playing in that role and I'm sort of clutching at straws to say that he might be here next season because it's, it's 99% certain that he won't be and it will be he will be a big miss but like you say there are other players that can come in and do that job and Jones is a totally different, totally different player. Um, in terms of where he sits, the the point that that Dan just made about him 
an ox in a sort of direct comparison. I actually think that the ox is probably probably behind Curtis Jones in, in where he is at the minute. Their, their playing styles are similar in an extent. And I heard Dan's point about saying that ox might be a bit more dynamic, but I don't think he uses the ball as well as Jones does. Um, so for me, I think I think Curtis Jones sits almost almost top of that list for me um, in terms of talent and current performances because I think that's what you've got to probably judge it on because it's, it's very hard to make that list at the Knicks. Obviously, Kate has been in and out of the team with injury, although when he does play again, a player that I really like and he is really progressive, he will get the ball, he will drive uh, the defence and he'll probably be vying for one of those positions. Like you say, it will, you, you can't see him and Curtis Jones playing in the same team um, because it probably leaves that third midfielder a bit exposed. Again, Shakiri, I like him and, you know, he's he's a really good player and, you know, Crops, they, they keep saying that he might be moved on if a, the right offer comes in, but I think there's something about him that Crop likes, otherwise he wouldn't wouldn't be keeping him around as such. But, so we've got Ox, Ox, Cater, Jones, Milner and Shakiri. I'd say probably, if we're going on what Klopp's thinking, I think Cater's probably at the top of the list because I just think Klopp really likes him. I think Jones probably comes in second, shortly followed by Ox, Shaq, and then unfortunately Mr. Milner at the bottom of the list. And that's no, nothing against him and his performance levels. I think that's just because of his role in the squad, his age. He, I think, with no disrespect to him, he is more sort of being phased into a, a presence rather than someone that we actually use in at the first instance of thinking, obviously he's a great player to have around, he's still performing at an absolutely ridiculous level for his age, begrudgingly putting him, putting him at the bottom of the list. But I think basically where Curtis Jones sits is very right at the top of that, of that list, just because I think whenever he's given the chance, he's actually proven to do something. And that's probably my biggest frustration with Shakiri and Oxlade Chamberlain. I know he's had a hard time with injuries, but whenever he comes in, you just sort of think, oh, brilliant, the Ox is back. And we think of Ox of 2017. And he's just never quite got back there. He shows it in fits and starts, but you just never know which Oxley Chamberlain's going to come on the pitch. I'm not going to ask you to do the whole ranking, Dan, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on the Cater and Jones comparison. Uh, yeah, it's, it's. I probably agree with, with most things um, on that list, to be honest with you, in terms of the order. And the Jones and Cater one, they're very similar. And Scott touched upon the fact that they probably won't play together um, unless one of them's quite dramatically out of position. I wonder for. So yeah, it's a, the thing is with Kate, like we've got to caveat this the whole time. Like in my head, even discussing him now, I'm thinking, well, he's probably not going to be available. Like, and I hate to say it, and it sounds brutal, but unfortunately, it's been the reality of his time at Liverpool. So Liverpool midfield has rotated like that heavily, and we've always had this wealth of options that it probably doesn't matter too much that he's not in that in that front line midfield. Um, although I said Oxley Chamberlain is probably more dynamic than Jones, that is probably just solely, but not necessarily just on pace, but like in terms of carrying the ball forward and driving at players and getting in behind. They're just for seeing at his best at doing that, but his best has been a long time coming now, um, if we're honest, since his injury, unfortunately. So I definitely rank Jones above Oxlade Chamberlain. But I'm with Scott. I think Klopp's got this inclination towards Cater that he really likes him. And I think he's like, I think he was billed like the perfect Klopp midfielder when we signed him. And I think that rings true. Um, and I think Klopp, and I think the club are so determined to get the best out of him eventually that a, a fit cater would probably start like every game for us near enough. 
um, ahead of Jones. That's just the way, just the way I see it, and I think that's the way you know Klopp sees it. If I'm honest, but that doesn't mean you know Jones hasn't got a role because he has. Um, whether that be part of the front three, you know, changing games from the bench or or starting where possible, I think there's a big role to be played in the Liverpool midfield for him. Um, but I do see caterers above him next year. I do. Yeah, quite a an interesting debate going on there, really, between those midfielders. Um, just to finish this Jones section, I wanted to uh, come back to the the idea that both Dan and Scott mentioned about Jones as a Wijnaldum replacement. It's not necessarily a question of, obviously, we'd want Liverpool to bring in another body, but we know how Liverpool likes to spend things sometimes. They like to say they've already got solutions in-house. You know, Jones is more and more disciplined. He's, he's press-resistant. Um, although you obviously wouldn't be comfortable playing him as a number six, which is something Wijnaldum can do. I think probably the main argument, though, in terms of buying another midfielder, if and when Wijnaldum leaves, is that so many of the players in that midfield uh, are injury prone and the squad depth almost becomes an illusion. You know, if we if we go back to that list, Ox, obviously injury prone. Milner, not so much, although he's had a couple of muscle injuries this season. Shakiri, obviously injury prone. And Keita, we don't even need to discuss. So, yeah, we will need to, to bring in another body, you know, for that reason. But, I think Jones's first team involvement this season, you know, I expected him to have, I think he took Adam Alana's shirt number. I expected that to be symbolic in a way that he was going to play the amount of games Alana has. He's actually far surpassed that, partly because of injuries, but partly because of the level he's playing at. And yeah, I think there's, I think next season we'll probably see him exceed our expectations again. But we'll move on now to the second topic we want to drill into today. And it's about one of the goal scorers on Tuesday, Mo Salah. Um, First of all, I'm going to throw some stats at you. He's now scored 24 goals in all competitions. In the whole of last season, he scored 23. Season before, he got 27. So, realistically, it's going to be his second best season at the club. He's on a minutes per goal of 114. If he keeps that up, it'll be closing in on 40 by the end of the season. Obviously, there's no guarantee he does that, but obviously, it's still pretty staggering. Some more stats. Salah needs 12 more goals to enter Liverpool's all-time top 10. He's been here three and a half years. No one else in the top 10 played for Liverpool for less than seven years. And Salah part would tweet after the, um, after Leicester before Leipzig saying, we will not allow this season to be defined by the recent results we've had. That is my promise to all of you. So on the basis of those stats and that tweet, the question I want to ask is this. Do we think that Salah has taken on extra responsibility this season? Do we think he's almost said to himself that he needs to carry the club through this, through the turmoil that, that we've faced? Um, let's go to Scott first on this one. This is, I mean, those stats, first of all, are just absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, the consistency of the man is phenomenal. I mean, you, you know, he might go through periods where he potentially doesn't doesn't play as well as he can, but even that level is still good enough for him to be an integral member of the team. And you can always count on him for a goal. Like, you know, when he's on the pitch, you've always got a chance because he is just that good. Um, and like I said, 20, 12 more goals to enter into our all-time top 10 scorers and he's been here three and a half years. It's, absolutely, it's half the time of anybody else. It's just absolutely ridiculous. But um, in terms of taking on that leadership role, I don't necessarily think that it's something that has come 
this season, if I'm being perfectly honest with you. I think probably in his first season was a point where he was trying to, you know, gel in with the squad and obviously he hit the ground running, had an absolute barnstormer of a season. You know, we've probably had a bit of a point to prove after obviously sort of his, his time at Chelsea and his first stint in the Premier League didn't go to plan. But I think from then, he's obviously quickly established himself as the talisman of the team. Klopp obviously believes in him. He obviously gets on really well with, with the rest of the squad. And as a result of those performances and that first season, I think people will automatically kind of look to him, not necessarily as a leader as such in first instance, but, you know, a bit like Gerard was when he was at the club and when we had Torres. And you, you think of all those, like, vital players, like, you know, when we're in need of something, heads automatically turn to him, if that makes sense. So I think that's kind of been an expectation that's been on his shoulders since probably halfway, three quarters of the way through his first season, to be perfectly honest with you. that With that, he's a humble and professional enough player to realise that with that comes responsibility within the squad and he's realised that responsibility and is sort of just harnessing it and I mean he's around like good people to sort of realise that in that you know we've got some really good leaders in the team in terms of Van Dyke and obviously Juan Aldum's name obviously gets banded around his fourth in line to the captaincy and then you've got the likes of Milner and, and Henderson as the captain and vice captain so he'll see those people as you know the, the sort of attributed leaders and we will be able to learn a lot learn a lot from those and I think that's kind of where it comes from and I think that tweet as well was obviously what we needed to hear at the time we needed to hear it but I think a lot of that is it just comes down to his personal drive as well I think he doesn't want to be part of this team that sort of I don't want to say falls by the wayside but it doesn't quite live up to the level that they were last year he doesn't want that so he's going to kind of just like right okay I'm going to start taking things by the scruff of the neck. And then he's going to turn around to the rest of the lads and be like, you need to follow me here because we're not letting, we're not letting everybody down like this. And I think it's possibly been emphasised by what's gone on this season, but I don't think it's necessarily something that's brand new for this season. I think it's, it's probably been there for quite some time, to be honest. Yeah, there's different kinds of leadership, isn't there? You know, there's leading by example, you know, being vocal on the pitch, but there there is also you know, as to use the phrase that Scott used, you know, taking the game by the scruff of the neck. And yeah, Salah's mentality is is just immense, really. And, you know, it's the kind of mentality that we've seen from sort of the legendary forwards down the years, just that appetite and the fact that you can't really ruffle them and they never have goal droughts that extend beyond, you know, three or four games because they're just that good and they're, and they're that resilient. Um. Let's sort of broaden the discussion and, and bring in Dan. Um, there's a lot of all-time rankings, all-time discussions um, happening as a result of, of Salah's form this season and how he's sustained it for so long. Um, it's difficult to sort of predict the future um, and where Salah will, will end up and what trophies he'll end up with. But... You know, how high could he end up ranking it in theory down sort of in Liverpool's all-time pantheon, if you like? I mean, time probably time probably tells you he won't end up, you know, amongst the upper echelons of those sort of, you know, the greats that we're talking about in terms of goals. Um, but in terms of, you know, his his ratios, they'll be, you know, probably succeed. Like they'll probably be better than the rest, if that makes sense. But... Yeah, um, it's difficult to judge players, I always find, um, in terms of all-time greats until they've left the club. Like, 
we tend not to do it until even with like Suarez and you know foregone players like that, we tend to really remember them once they've gone. And I think there's an element of that with Salah now. We probably won't appreciate just how good he was for us until he's left. Um, obviously, we all know, like you mentioned, the stats, his, his numbers are ridiculous. And the first season he came in, you know, he carried us and all the rest of it, he was outstanding. And he continues to be outstanding. He's pretty unrelenting in terms of in terms of goal, even though his performances aren't necessarily fantastic all the time. But in terms of like his all-time legacy, um, I think it'd be difficult to judge um, until he's gone. But he, he's definitely going to be amongst the discussion. There's absolutely no doubt about it. If he wins one or two more trophies, whatever it may be. Um, but like I said, I think time will dictate the fact he won't be the greatest, if you like. Um, just on the carrying the Liverpool sort of fight of late, obviously the tweet was perfectly timed, but it's a really interesting leadership discussion because he leads by his goals, obviously, <laughs> obviously primarily. But if you think of his international career, like he has... Egypt on a terrible side, but he has carried Egypt to some, you know, major competitions, African Cup of Nations. So he's already got that instilled in him, you know, and the weight of that nation on your shoulders is pretty heavy. So there's definitely some leadership, you know, qualities in him. Um, and we're going to need them between now and then the season, as well as everyone else's. Yeah, that's a great point, actually, the the amount of responsibility that, that he has to bear. And on the, the all-time discussion, um, it's you've obviously raised the point that often gets bandied about the idea that you know Salah's underappreciated that we won't really appreciate the the level of player that we had until he's left. Um, I do think that's changing now. I think that's changing this season, and I think you can see that because we are talking of Salah in historic terms, not just in terms of is Salah better than these players at rival teams. You know, we're looking at. Um, we're already starting to ponder his legacy um, and obviously we have our very influential podcast doing that but as I was looking at um, Scott's Twitter feed earlier I saw that in September I think it was after the Leeds game Scott tweeted that no arguments Mo Salah is one of Liverpool's all-time greats and he got that as his pinned tweet with um, about 15,000 likes on it so there we go. Um, maybe a little bit ahead of the curve on that. Um, and we'll get Scott to sort of talk a little bit about that in a second. Um, in terms of where I think he'll rank, um, you know, we've seen similarly prolific players, I think. You know, the likes of Suarez, definitely, um, probably Owen and Fowler as well um, in certain periods. But I think what the history books will show is that Salah was probably the driving force behind Liverpool's rise under Klopp and certainly the the goal scoring force behind it, obviously, in tandem with Mane. Um, but, you know, Liverpool have become, and Salah plays a huge part in this, you know, certainly one of the best teams in the world, even now and last season, they just they were the best team in, in the, the world, or certainly in, in 2019 anyway. And yeah, I don't think there's any reason to believe that the silverware he's won up to this point will be his last. Just to finish on the Salah section, we'll, we'll let you sort of throw your views in, Scott. Yeah, and to be perfectly honest, I think when Dan mentioned about like you know the real sort of great greats, when you look at there's there's, there's quite, almost kind of like different tiers of like Liverpool legends, and there I think, and, and and that often gets banded about. I think there's that elite bracket that only has a select few names in it, which is where the likes of like you know Gerrards and Dalglish sit. That's I don't think I don't think he's quite there. 
but I think he's he's knocking on the door a little bit. And I, I don't think you can really argue with it. The amount of goals he's scored, the amount of goals he's created, the influence that he's had on the team's style, the sort of the drive that he's put behind making Liverpool the best team in the world. Um, at sort, of, sort of last year, obviously, levels are not quite there at the moment, but he is he is pivotal to absolutely everything that has, that has happened um, in the last couple of years. I mean, obviously, Mane came in just before him and kind of started that ball rolling. I think we do forget that a little bit sometimes, that he was kind of the first big attacking Klopp signing and it was a sign of things to come. Um, but that's a whole different conversation for another time, I think. But um, I just don't think you can argue with him. He's a Premier League, European Cup winning, Club World Cup winning forward. Well, winger, forward, whatever you want to call him. He's, like you say, pushing on the top 10 all-time goal scorers list. Been here three and a half years. I think the only thing, I, I no one would begrudge him with this, but the only thing that could possibly sort of prevent him going down as one of, one of those all-time greats is if and how he leaves the club, for, you know, if it's a bit of a messy one, I think it tarnishes that because obviously, you know, you see that the likes of Suarez and Torres and when those players leave the club with it in a, under a bit of a shadow, it does put a bit of a black spot against their name for a while. I mean, all things kind of forgiven with those two now um, to an extent. But, you know, I, it, it's one of those where if, if, a, if the time comes in the next couple of years and his contract's running out and he just says, I fancy a new challenge, and he leaves all things well. I think it will it will benefit him. But and I, again, I think it's one of those we're not going to realise quite what we've got until he's gone. Until you know we have to try and fill that void because it will be a void and it will be huge. And I just don't think that we've ever quite seen a player of such quality and consistency in a long time in a Liverpool shirt. I mean, I know Suarez did it for a few years, but then he left. So it's kind of like he, he gave us a couple of good years, but then it's just like well we were kind of left wanting more, whereas with Salah, it kind of feels like after this, we've seen everything he can possibly give and everything we get then is just like, let's just enjoy it because he's just phenomenal. Yeah, all very good points. Um, and I think you're, you're right to acknowledge that Dog Leash, Gerard, probably Ian Rush, maybe one or two other players from the before the, the modern era of the club really are sort of in their own echelon. But um, there's no reason Salah can't be really, you know, right behind them, and the longevity that he's had as well. I think Salah, you know, for talking about extra responsibility, he'll feel that he he wants to be when Liverpool lose this when Liverpool lose this title to Man City, he he will feel the responsibility to get them back up to that level. We have to move on now to. Our, our derby preview and I, what I did want to discuss was our favourite Anfield derbies um, sadly we just simply don't have any time to do that um, and we're going to have to go, sort of pivot instead to the slightly dark follow up that I had to, to that question and basically we need to face the possibility because of a range of circumstances that this could be the the year that Everton get their first win of the 21st century at Anfield. Um, Dan, do we entertain the possibility that we lose on Saturday? Um, I think we have to, don't we? Because you know our form isn't fantastic. Um, they're playing; they're not playing great right now, but they've had a much improved season. Um, no fans at Anfield, as we all know, uh, doesn't help. 
or Anfield form in particular is is dire if we're perfectly honest with you right now. So yeah, I think we have to, unfortunately. I'm I'm much more confident going into it after what happened in midweek. There's no doubt about it. But at the same time, um, yeah, we've got our struggles and I think this is going to be a difficult match. Um, You know, historically, we've got into these and we've named random teams and we've ended up getting over the line somehow. Um, Arigi, Jordan Pickford, for instance. Um, And even like, you know, other ones whereby we've named like people who haven't played for weeks, like when Shakiri and Alana played one last year and all that sort of stuff. And obviously the kids in the cup we tend to get through, but this is a different story altogether about fans, in my opinion. It's gonna be um it's gonna be a tough one. Um and it could be the year they do it, um, unfortunately. Yeah. It's all about taking confidence from midweek. You know, that's certainly true in terms of the the feeling within the camp, in terms of whether you can kind of draw too much optimism from that game. I'm not sure because it's going to be entirely different. I think Everton, you know, are going to come, they're going to set up in a low block and try and kill us on the counter or more likely than that, set pieces where where they are so strong. Everton fans have been joking recently about how against, you know, poor sides, they're destined to lose and against top teams, they've got a fighting chance. Um yeah, so it's partly a tactical fear that I have, but it's also kind of superstition that you know our season keeps finding ways to to kick us while we're down, and there's obviously no fans in Anfield, and it just has that there just is that um, nagging feeling around it, um, and yeah, this would probably be the biggest punch in the stomach so far. But um, Scott, um, we'll come to you. Um, I'd like you to give us your preferred lineup for the game as well as something of a score prediction. And obviously, you know, do you say whether you think Everton have got, you know, a good opportunity of causing Liverpool some more misery this, this weekend? I'll just touch on the, the last bit first. I think they've got a shot. I think they've always got a shot, to be honest. It's a derby. You never really know what's going to happen. So there's always some sort of trepidation as to what's going to happen. And I think they're probably going to welcome back players like Alan. Dominic Calvert-Lewin, the last name on that list being my biggest concern, given that we've got barely any sort of centre-back rigidity uh, at the moment. Um, so, yeah, their sort of set-piece sort of dominance worries me a little. Um, but I think their mindset is, you know, oh, look, let's, like you just said, kick Liverpool while they're down. Really good opportunity, no fans and stuff there, whereas the pressure's kind of all on us. We really need to start picking up points on a regular to get top four. We've got no fans thinking it's a derby. We don't want to lose at home to Everton for the first time in God knows how long. All that sort of stuff, I think, is a really interesting sort of switching mentality where we're kind of going into it with a bit more trepidation and they're kind of going into it a bit more fired up. But we'll wait and see what happens. Preferred lineup: Big Allison in goal. Trent and Robbo at right and left back. I think Kabak has to start at centre-back because I've, I've been impressed with him so far. He was particularly good against um, Leipzig. He was aggressive, he pressed well, he was good in the air, he's snapping into tackles, making good decisions. So I'd like to see him there. And I think if we're being perfectly honest, we're going to see him there with Henderson as well. Um purely because it's a I know we've not got an easy game to throw someone like Ben Davis into. Um but I just don't think his for his Liverpool debut will come in a derby. But then again there's a strong chance for Matt Phillips to start given Everton's aerial prowess especially with Calvert-Lewin because Matt Phillips as we know is pretty good in the air so I think it will be Henderson but I wouldn't be 
surprised if it's Phillips, but then again, I'll kind of be surprised to see another new centre-back pairing. So we'll have to wait and see on that one. Um, I think we'll have um, Thiago, Wijnaldum and probably Curtis Jones again in midfield because I think the three played really well against Leipzig. Um, and like I say, we need sort of Genie's experience and shield in that, that centre-back pairing. Um, Curtis Jones's work rate with that little bit of flair with Thiago as well, who, like you say, Dan mentioned earlier, is probably not playing the role he signed up for at the minute, but he's doing it well. Um, and then obviously the front three picks itself at the moment, and we need those three to be on top of the game like they were um, against Leipzig too. I mean, in terms of predictions, I think the low block will probably will probably come back. Ancelotti will probably park the bus and try and hit us on the break with players like Rodriguez and Calvert Lewin, and you know they, they have got some good attacking threat, and they're quite a pacey team as well. And they've good deliveries in from Dina and all that sort of stuff. So I think it will be really interesting. It'll probably be one of the most interesting derbies for a while. But we saw when we played them at Goodison, they're no pushovers, and you know we went ahead twice and they pinned us back. So they're not going to go down without a fight for sure. Um, but I think it could be quite a you know when you build those games up like you tend to, and then it turns out to be a bit of a damp squib. I think it's probably going to be quite a low scoring one, but if I'm going to go with anything, I want to be optimistic and say 2-1 Liverpool, to be honest. Okay. Um, my team is exactly the same as yours. Um, Henderson into midfield. I don't see it for this game. I think there was enough in midweek um, to be confident in the midfield of Wijnaldum, Thiago and Jones again. Um, we'll have to see if a fit Fabinho would complicate the discussion. He didn't train yesterday, so it doesn't look like um, he is going to be involved. Keita has a chance, but I just don't see him starting, given that we are nursing him back to to involvement, really. And I don't think you, you throw him in from the start. I think you give him a couple of sub-appearances there. Um, my score prediction, I have that nasty feeling, um, as I said, and a lot of the time, in all fairness, my pre-match feeling is wildly inaccurate. Uh, in the end, um, I'm going to say, I think because, you know, you do need to have at least one ball in Derby a season. It's just the way the Merseyside Derby works because the last one was so dramatic. I'm going to, I'm going to go for nil nil. I do feel bad not predicting a win, but I just don't want to, you know, I don't want to underestimate the, the cruelty of the season. Um, we'll finish with Dan on this um, because I know that Dan will have predicted a win because Dan is an inherently optimistic fan from what I can what I can gather. So Dan, team, score prediction, and then we'll just hear finally from Scott. Yeah, I'm glad you've got me nailed down as an optimist. Um, team-wise, I'm just going to touch on it because it's obviously very similar to you guys. I have got Phillips in. Um, I think a lot will depend on if Calvert-Lewin's available for Everton. Um, but I, I just think Phillips' aerial prowess against what is a strong Everton side will be important. And if it means we get Henderson back into midfield, it'll be great. Um, and Klopp's known for shocking us in derbies in terms of team selection. So I have gone with Phillips at the back with Kabak. Other than that, and Henderson's coming in for Jones, unfortunately, despite what we touched on earlier. Um, but I just think that extra additional industry, again, will be important. Um, and as for prediction, yeah, I've got, I've gone Liverpool 2-0. Um, partly because I'm an optimist and a lot of based on what I've seen in midweek. 
both for Mulls and Everton, because they were ran ragged for 90 minutes by City a little bit. Although they were in the game for long periods, it looked like hard work to me. Um, and I think that might stand us in good stead. So, yeah, 2 0. Um, Quebec and Philip centre halves is my assumption from all this. Well, thank you for that, Dan. Thank you for that note of optimism to really end the podcast on. Um, before we finish, and this episode could easily have been two hours with all the stuff that we wanted to get in, and ideally we could have talked more about the derby, but you know, the demands of time and all that. Um, Scott, I'm just going to give you the usual opportunity to, to plug any work that you have coming up or work that you'd like people to read. Um, I'll put your Twitter handle in, in the episode description, so you don't need to worry about that. Um, but yeah, if you have anything, now's your opportunity. A couple of pieces a week coming out from um, myself on uh, LFC Transfer Room uh, and Anfield Index. And then, like I said, I'll try and get involved with, with people like yourself. So thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been, it's been really nice to have a chat. So yeah, just give me a follow on Twitter. I'm always tweeting about something Liverpool related so you can have a pop at me or say that I'm speaking the truth whenever you feel. Well, yeah, thanks very much for, for coming on. And I think we've all enjoyed the discussion we've had today. That is all for this busy and prolonged episode. Um, we will see if my pre-match bad feeling is patently incorrect again or whether the optimism of Dan and Scott is realised. Let's hope so. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts.